Hello and welcome to the Infinite Improvisation Podcast, Adventures in Music and Creativity. I'm Steve Tressler, joined as always by Lauren Best. Hey, Lauren. Hello, and we have someone else here with us today as well. We're lucky today. We have Steve Giddings here with us today. Welcome. Welcome, and well, I guess thank you, but yes, I'm happy to be here. (laughs) So we'll share a little bit about you with our listeners before we start our conversation. So aside from his regular gig as a public school music teacher, Steve is a regular columnist in the Canadian Music Educator Journal, where he writes on topics including popular music education and creativity, and is the author of the award-winning book, Rock Coach, a practical guide for teaching rock bands in schools, and Creative Musicking, practical, real-life ideas to get your learners creating their own music. He also recently released his third book called Technology for Unleashing Creativity through Oxford University Press. He has been a longtime advocate for creative musical practices and a conduit for pushing the envelope in music education throughout Canada and across the world. He is owner and operator of stevesmusicroom.com, a music education blog and resource hub. Follow him on socials at steve's music room that's me All right yeah <laughs> welcome yeah so S- steve and i met briefly several months back at a it was an online music teachers event for I suppose music teachers slash independent business people sharing some of our work and products and whatnot and we each talked for about five minutes yeah i heard steve's presentation i was like hey lauren this he's one of us he's speaking our language <laughs> the folks that are uh, One of the advocating people. for creativity and some, <clears throat> um, yeah, possibly non-traditional ways of teaching music in, and in your case, in the school settings. I think in a lot of, a lot of ways, how we teach traditional music education, maybe narrow it down to in the schools, you know, there, there's some big holes and leaving some people behind. I really think, Steve, what you're doing is you're helping, helping fill some of those holes uh, in the world of I'm not a band teacher myself, but I'm involved in many music programs in schools, like secondary schools, for those in our audience that might not know. It's very much centered on these large ensembles of Western art music. So we have band, orchestra, and choir in these large groups, and it's a great community. It's how I started playing. There's a lot of amazing things that happen, but I think it leaves, as I said, it leaves some folks behind. So I guess Steve will start with what what are some of those pain points or, or problems that you see with kind of that, those traditional models that maybe got you started with some of your projects? Well, I guess, uh, how long do we have? <laughs> I could go on. Um, so I guess one of the main issues is that, like you said, it doesn't really, it doesn't get to every kid. Um, like there's a lot of kids that it, it doesn't quite do it for. And what I started doing when I was teaching was I started a little rock band at the school I was at. And it was a very small school, 53 kids at that school at that point, And it was only grades one to four. And the grade four class, we started a rock band. And it was just kind of, I we figured out together who would be best fit for a particular instrument in the rock band. And then we just played a, learned a song together. And the concert, we played that song. And then later on, I, I started um, just doing more of it. Because in my undergrad, I did a whole project on teaching rock bands in schools and how it gets to other kids it gets the different population of the school right so if you have your band your orchestra your choir there's certain kids that really like that and it's certainly beneficial to have in a school but 
if you're ignoring all those other ways of musicking, then you're missing out on a, a lot of kids are missing out on a, an opportunity that where they could be learning about music in school. So a rock band, like a rap, a rap collective or, uh, you know, music technology, um, production, emceeing, like th- those types of music that happen outside of the school setting, but don't tend to happen uh, in the secondary school setting need to be it's a bit bridging the gap, I suppose, that we've mm-hmm. we've kind of made. Because if you look at music making outside of a school setting, how often is anyone really going to be playing in a wind band? Um, you know, wind band is kind of king in the secondary schools here in Canada, and I know in the states it's pretty, it's even bigger. Um, but <clears throat> excuse me, it's about offering more than just that because if you look outside of the school like i said uh you know the only opportunity really to play in a wind band is in the military um yeah there's very few opportunities outside of there are some call around here there's some colleges that offer community bands and the the military and 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 that can be great but that's that is a small slice of people that are making music and, out in the yeah, world and when, and when we look at folks who are going to make music outside of school and into the lifetime, it's likely not going to be on their bassoon, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, they're probably, maybe they'll find a community band to play in, but the community bands only exist because they existed in schools in the first place. Um, it's kind of like a, play to, a place to extend what they did in school. Mm-hmm. But if you're teaching kids how to play in a rock band, improvise, uh, you know, create their own music, learn by ear, then they're more likely going to want to make more music outside of a school setting mm. um, and into their lifetime because they'll have those tools that they can use to make music on their own. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of, you know, I see a lot of students who are very active in their large band program. They get these big communities and go and play these festivals. Uh, but then when it comes time, if they're going to college, if they're not majoring in music, sometimes, oh, I'm really busy in my engineering program. I don't have time to take a band, so I'm going to stop playing music for the rest of my life. Exactly. Like, that happens a but, lot when you're a... But if you have these skills that you're more independent, you'll jam, you can make your own music, that you don't necessarily need the conductor and a whole ensemble. I mean, that's one of the big... Um, one of those big holes that that I see when you're so dependent on that structure to make music. If you can't commit to that you know, that same kind of experience then. Yeah. Oh, I'm, not, and, I'm so dependent on that that I can't make music. And that whole idea of, you know, relying on the sheet music is kind of a sticking point for me because I learned how to play trombone and baritone and some wind instruments only by note. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's how I grew up learning music in that setting. Meanwhile, I was learning drums by comp- almost completely by ear. Like I took a couple lessons, but I, I learned drums and played in rock bands when I was like 13, 14 years old. But none of that was with notation. It was all by ear or just, you know, kind of making up our own stuff and then just kind of going from there. So I was kind of living in these two opposite worlds at the same time. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about focusing on band or orchestra uh, is that there tends to be an unhealthy focus on staff notation primarily. Um, And I mean, those settings, you kind of need to be able to do that, but it doesn't really help develop any other skills other than being able to read staff notation, which is, uh, in the real world, it's really not that as important as we've all kind of been led to believe. 
sure it's in some places you know you, you do need to use it in like a pit orchestra or you know if you happen to get that one you know gig in the orchestra that that opens up every 15 years uh you will use it there but for the most part a lot of the stuff that you will be doing outside of school you need to be versatile. You need to be able to play by ear and improvise and, and do all those things, especially if you're like a guitar player or a drummer. Uh, drummers, I find, they really don't need to know how to read notation at all. Like they do, some do, but in a, in a rock band setting, you really don't need that that skill. It's certainly like, I wouldn't tell anyone not to, but it's like not to learn it, but it's not super useful in a lot of skill, in a lot of uh, settings. So you talked a little bit about like your own musical journey and how that tied into this sort of split between these two experiences you were having, uh, you know, between school music and and out of school music. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a bit about a bit more about that and and your story and kind of what brought you to this point of of where you see things now? Yeah. So I guess. Like I, like I said, I was living in complete polar opposites all at the same time. And I did go to University of Prince Edward Island for basically a classical music degree uh, on trombone. And I was still kind of playing in rock bands on drums here and there outside while I was going through. And, uh, you know, I was, I sometimes would be, you know, would play percussion parts in orchestra. Uh, you know, or, or whatever, because the professors knew I had those skills. But um, it was interesting because if I took sheet music away from, like, if, if there was no sheet music when I was playing trombone, I basically was muted. I couldn't do anything. It was as if I couldn't speak, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. or if someone put a jazz chart in front of me and said, okay, you got a solo. I'd be like, uh, what? Uh, I don't understand. And I kind of felt jaded in a way because like I had, I was very highly skilled on playing trombone and, you know, uh, reading staff notation. But, you know, was I really that good of a musician if I, all I, you know, if you took the music away and I couldn't play, like, was I really that good? <laughs> You know, mm. and then like I kind of had this thing and I just started thinking when I was in my undergrad, like because people would say, oh, you learn that by ear. Oh, you know, that's it was kind of given a bad rap. You know what I mean? Mm. And it was seemed it, it was kind of played off as this really this lesser kind of mm. skill. And I'm sure that's pretty common throughout all you know, North America, basically. But then my thinking about it was, well, if it's so basic and it's so, you know, lesser, then why can't we all do it? Mm. <laughs> you know, and then it just started dawning on me, like, why we need to be able to do this stuff in school. This is this mm. is super important. And there's certain genres that lend themselves better to that, that particular way of making music, mm. like rock music. Uh, it's primarily done by ear and learned informally and there are other notation systems that these musicians use that are are standardized by the way mm -hmm. like when we say standard musician or standard uh, notation what do we mean do we need do we mean nashville numbers do we need mean uh uh tab do we mean 
you know, lyric charts, like those are all standardized forms of music notation, but people say standard and they automatically think mm -hmm. staff, mm -hmm. but that is not, you know, the be all and end all. Mm -hmm. And I just, it, it kind of occurred to me that rock bands and other types of music making ensembles need to be present in schools alongside the, the very, you know, successful band and orchestra programs too. Mm. Yeah. I think you've brought up something really important, this sort of, that I think a lot of, of people experience in their musical journeys, whether whether they feel this in school, or I've heard people who, you know, wouldn't consider themselves musicians kind of express similar things about this, oh, that was just by ear, like on one side, just it's almost like a, you know, ear, like yeah. on... It's almost like devils on both shoulders. <laughs> you know, one is the like, oh, like you couldn't just read the music and be like literate and music devil. And then the, <laughs> oh, you can't just improvise and play by ear and play along yeah. with anyone you meet devil. <laughs> and like, yeah. I feel like it can really put people in a, in a difficult position. And like when people talk about imposter syndrome, I don't think it's necessarily imposter syndrome from within them. It's from like these outer yeah, I, forces I know it's kind of this voices. implicit bias that we've been taught uh, to believe. And like implicit bias is unintentional. And, you know, it, and the professors who probably taught this to us really didn't probably mean to teach us that. Mm -hmm. But the, the way it comes off is that it's a lesser skill. And I've heard even skilled musicians that can read staff notation really well or classically trained or whatever, that they said, oh, I cheated. And I'm like, what mm -hmm. do you mean? Oh, I learned by ear. It's like, uh, okay, mm -hmm. well, when you think about it, isn't reading the notation the cheating? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting that this developed this way because even in the history of Western art music, you know, before we had these you know large scale orchestras, everything written out, you know, there was so much more that was learned through apprenticeship and and learned by ear, and musicians would add their own embellishments and improvise. Um, Lauren, I should link to there's that PBS Soundfield mm -hmm. episode that I kind of helped produce about like why classical musicians don't improvise anymore. So you know, it's only been that maybe the last hundred and fifty years where musicians were you know with the rise of like industrial revolution and you know becoming a cog in a machine and if you're playing yeah if you're the 10th second violin player you know you're gonna you know play your part and but but even in the classical tradition you know folks like when i went to music school there were some students that came from korea and russia and and europe that could solfege like crazy they could look at a score and sing and solfege the whole thing like that ear training um and, and you know and and uh, that ear training allowed them to even improvise more, or take some more creative risks. So, I mean, all of that's even embedded into the classical tradition as well, that it's sort of a mo mm. more modern iteration where we just read what's on the page um, and not having that, that oral training, you know, through apprenticeship and, and creative, yeah, creative pr practices. And interesting that you brought up ear training because mm -hmm. ear training and learning by ear are often kind of, thought of as the same thing but they're not mm -hmm. because ear training is very formal and mm -hmm. sep completely separated from your main instrument and you're not put into a situation where you actually just have to learn something by ear whereas ear learning and ear based learning and learning by ear you pretty much have the recording there and you just go through it and learn it and that's how you learn it and that's how you gain your your ear your quote unquote ear uh so they're very different approaches. And 
I read this study by Lucy Green, where it actually you can actually learn quicker. You can get a better ear quicker by learning by ear hmm. than you can by ear training. Hmm. Um, by being immersed in that that practice. Yeah. Um, and it not, not necessarily better, not necessarily better ear, but quicker, for sure. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. In my mind, those end up in the same bucket. But if you're talking about, yes, oftentimes, yeah, in school, the ear training class is, yeah, separate from your instrument. It's like, the problem with these things being siloed, that music history or music theory or yeah. ear training is all separate from the performance when they're all in- integrated. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. Now, I mean, to think about it in the conservatory, I went to New England Conservatory. There was a, the jazz classes were very much, there was ear training, but it was very much like ear learning as you're talking about listening mm-hmm. and learning and having your instrument out and, you know, l- learning things by ear, no notation, mm-hmm. um, which is much less common form of ear training then we're going to learn we're going to sit here and learn intervals by ear or do dictation where someone plays a melody and we write it down and then you don't take that next step of performing it or transposing it or changing it or all those elements and Um, like learning i've learned guitar by ear a lot and because it lends itself well to that and everything's on a recording so you can just it's there mm -hmm. and i've noticed over time that when I listen to a recording with guitar in it, I can hear, I can see, I can visualize where it is on the fretboard and where it's moving to. Mm. I may not start on the right fret, but I know the patterns. So I can hear the patterns and, you know, there's Mm. certain chords I can hear right away uh, just because of the idiomatics of the instrument, like, you know, a D sus going to a, resolving to the, the D on a guitar is like super easy to hear. (laughs) Like right away I can pick it out. Uh, just because of the way the instrument's built. Hmm. And that's Um, music that was performed... Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, it's okay. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, that was music that was initially recorded and played that it wasn't written down until after. Some, you know, someone may have transcribed it later, which is different than, you know, you're reading off of the score. But this is music that the oral tradition, you know, in my jazz background, it's like the recordings are, that is the primary source. Someone may have written it down, but that's not the score. I mean, it's cool if you see a manuscript of, oh, here's Wayne Shorter's handwriting of this chart. And you're like, oh, this is what was written down. You know, that can be cool. But so, but the recording is still the Yeah. And we forget that source. jazz, we forget that jazz was an oral tradition way longer than it was a, a quote unquote literate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I hate the word literate in this context mm-hmm. because you can be a literate musician without being able to read notation. Mm-hmm. You like if I think of some of the best rock musicians I've worked with that work that like travel all around North America playing, like go to Nashville and play and stuff. And, you know, I remember him saying once, like this person I'm thinking of, oh, but I, I can't read music. I just do the numbers. And but what he what he meant was he reads Nashville numbers super well. <laughs> um, and. He's literate with that, but even without that, a lot of these musicians, you can put them in any rock setting or any adjacent, you know, uh, musical setting and they, they can get by, they can do well. And to me, being able to have a conversation musically is, is being literate. Cause if you think mm. about it as a, like language learning, you are not literate, you are not fluent 
or literate in a language if you cannot have a conversation in that language. Hmm. So when you were in a situation you described of having these kind of frustrations with your experiences with trombone or, or doubts, one could say, what helped you get from there to the point you are now with your third book coming out and helping other people, you know, see the light? Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting because I, I was terrified of improvising for a long time on trombone. Hmm. And I happen to know these folks that were start, starting a ska band and they needed a trombone player and just happened to work out it was all original music. So I was kind of just forced to, I had to, I had no choice. But at the same time, there were no charts. So there's no, like no wrong answers in a, in a way. I just did air quotes. You probably can't see that on the yeah. podcast. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, the There were no charts, so there was no fear of, doing it wrong and it was the first time anyone's ever heard this song so there's no fear of doing it wrong because what no one knows what wrong is <laughs> so that was very freeing and the fact that there was notation no notation was also very freeing and I didn't have to think about the theory a lot I just like did it sound good okay I'll do that again if it didn't sound good I just didn't do it again hmm. and I started going to open jam nights here in PEI, like in Atlantic Canada anyway, there's a ton of music. Music is everywhere in this region. Like it, any musician that comes here would be able to find a gig in a day um, somewhere. And uh, they're on this tiny island that I live, just in the capital city, there are three separate jam nights every week. Uh, one is a blues night where you can basically just get up on stage and play blues. They don't have to know the song. There's a jazz night every Thursday where they do it. They uh, have a band come in from all over North America and then you get up and jam with that band <laughs> or that musician. And then there's a Celtic jam uh, uh, at the local, uh, you know, old triangle. <laughs> and uh, the Celtic jam, you just sit, basically sit at the chairs and play. I haven't gone to it yet with a trombone because I feel left you know trombone maybe not super appropriate for that but I, uh there's always fiddle players and and you know boron players and guitarists there and i've watched but never really got into it and that's my next one but i go to the blues nights and i go to the jazz nights and often with the jazz nights uh there's you know there's charts and I've learned over time on a jazz chart that if you pretty much stay in key for the first part of the so of the solo and then get weird in the middle and then go back to in key, you're pretty much going to do it fine. Hey, you're giving away our secrets. Today. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, because it's pretty much A-A-B-A -A -A most of the time. Uh, and I play in a, a the Charlottetown jazz ensemble which is like a big band and i started taking solos in the last few years i didn't for the first little while and that's kind of the formula i've noticed just stay in key and then get weird and then go back in key uh even if you don't know what the chords are it'll work and you'll kind of get by and survive that way um because really if you think about it and you see like a you know like a C, add nine, sharp 11, blah, 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 whatever. It basically is a chord with all the notes in it. So you could just do whatever you want and it's going to work. Uh, and often I'll look at the first chord and just go from there. 
but with the blues stuff, that was kind of a new learning experience too. Uh, it's like straight up blues, not jazz blues where you can't really hear the turnaround chords. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know Steve knows what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like straight up Old blues. Old school blues is the uh, <laughs> yeah. jazz yeah, guys yeah. call it. But yeah, some blue, yeah. blues blues. And uh, you can like really hear the turnarounds and you hear the chords coming through. But what's really interesting about blues is that you would, the, they would say, you know, what key are we in? And they'd say A. They don't mean A major. Don't play an A major scale. That's not what it means. It means play A blues, which has a sharp or has a uh, flat three, right? So, and a, a flat seven, but they're playing major chords. So that was a bit of a learning curve for me at first. And then once I figured it out, I was like, okay, yeah, you mean blues, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Um, Cause they wouldn't just say what to play in. They just assume, you know what you're doing. Um, I figured it out pretty quick though, <laughs> but uh, I'll go to those and just kind of play. Um, and that's what really got out, got me out of that whole not being able to play without the notation on trombone thing. Um, and just knowing that these are safe places, like mm-hmm. musicians want people to get up and play, you know, um, and sometimes, you know, the jazz players I've noticed sometimes will be like, you don't know that one? Oh, what's wrong with it? You don't know that tune? It's like, oh, well, I'm just going to play anyway. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> and I think it's a confidence thing too. Like if you just know that you're just going to play and not really care about the mistakes or care about what you're going to do, then it, it makes it better for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the most important thing is having a safe place to to make the, take those risks, which I think we can create in schools. But also those folks that I had a ska band with, they were my friends. So, you know, I didn't really care, you know, and they didn't care. And even to this day, when we get back and jam with one another and like, there's like a real obvious flub or like, just that didn't sound good. We'll just look at each other and laugh, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's okay. And that's kind of, I think, what folks need to get themselves out of that box. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's huge, that community and that safe space to take risks and 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 collaborate and and create because uh, improvisation can be a source of fear of so many people you're you're paralyzed you're on the spot and everyone's looking at you and I think of it like with public speaking like most people if you have a conversation you're chatting with your friends it's not scary you're talking mm. but as soon as you're on the spot and you have to give a toast at a wedding or a talk at work then you know it's biological this this fear of you know our, you know, ancestors, if, if you felt like you were at risk of being kicked out of your group, you know, you'd starve to death or get eaten by a predator. So like all that's, if you got, you know, mm-hmm. so it's all encoded into this, why some of these situations feel so scary when we know they're not dangerous. Um, and the way around it is really that community-based thing where, again, you have a conversation with your friends and it doesn't feel scary, yeah, like, giving, like a, giving a TED talk. Like what we're doing right now is mm-hmm. jamming. We're mm-hmm. improvising. We're using words we already know that work <laughs> in mm-hmm. these particular contexts and just jamming it out. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's 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 going okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, no one's... Like, it's just very laid back. And that that's kind of what we need in those types of situations, just laid back kind of safe places mm-hmm. for folks to, to experiment and take those risks. Mm. Yeah. So I'm picturing... 
I'm picturing someone starting to teach in school, you know, fresh out of out of teacher's college and thinking, you know, how they can create a laid back, like safe experience, which I think, you know, I think we're coming a long way in education around um like you know spelling out how and creating space for that kind of thing but like what what advice would you give to someone who's kind of early on their journey of trying to perhaps teach or or create spaces that are different than what they may have experienced um growing up either in schools or or even you know in their communities yeah i would say the best advice would be to embrace the chaos because it and I've heard the term organized chaos a lot to describe a music lesson and we just have to be able to let go and mm. trust the kids or and trust yourself that you know this is the way it needs to be because creativity is messy mm. and being a trained classical musician they don't like messy mm. because trained like uh, myself as a trained classical musician what i was trained to be was a perfectionist and mm. so oftentimes that perfectionism is kind of perpetuated through the school system uh from the teacher that is trained to be a perfectionist so being able to let go of that perfectionism and not really and just expecting everything to be messy until it isn't Mm. I suppose, mm. you know, because you have to make mistakes to be creative. Mm. You have to take risks uh, to be creative. And if you're not willing to take those risks, then the creativity can't happen. So it's mm. about trusting the kids and just letting go of, of your inhibitions. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and I know that can be challenging for some teachers that haven't experienced them themselves. You know, they've and had the training in schools done, and they're... Sure. No, and some people are just, I've noticed a resistance. Some people, you know, we all, to some degree, you know, retreat to our comfort zones. And for some people that haven't had that experience of, you know, playing in a ska band or doing, you know, sessions like the three of us has coming up with your own parts, or it's like very much, here's the literature on the page. It is, a, you know, it's a it's a big leap. I know for some folks to, mm -hmm, definitely. you know, to do something like lead a rock band or help kids make beats when they've never done it themselves. So, yeah, kind of, what, what do you do? How do you encourage you know teachers like that that maybe anything in this creative realm isn't what their background is? And I know that that's definitely a source of source of friction for some folks. Well, I wrote three books on it, so <laughs> ah, know, go on. Nice. Because <laughs> oh. uh, most my the three books that I wrote basically the whole opening of each one is talking about how we have to let go of our inhibitions and just let them create, let them mm. explore. They, they probably know more than you do. Mm. <laughs> like you're not the best musician in the room. Don't assume that just mm. because you're trained in university does not mean you're necessarily the best musician in the room. There's so much knowledge in these kids mm. and so much, uh, you know, stuff that they learn outside of school that you mm. may not have ever experienced, mm. you know, um, I mean, that could be a bad thing, but, you know, it, it, in a lot of times it can be very good because, you know, they're experimenting with making music on a computer. Mm. They're, you know, recording their own stuff. They're learning the guitar on their own. They're making up lyrics on their own. They're kids that do this all the time. And like myself, I've like writing lyrics is kind of challenging for me. 
mostly because I haven't done a lot of it. So it's just about embracing it and doing it. And if you want to learn the new skill, you got to do the new skill. Uh, anyone can learn to play by ear. Anyone can learn to improvise. Everyone can learn to compose. But if you don't do it, you won't learn it. So it's just about letting it happen, letting the kids take control uh, mm. to some degree um, and just letting them create, letting them experiment, letting them make those mistakes because, you know, and, and when we get to composing, we always kind of think about how, you know, it has to be, you have to know all the theory first before you can compose. Like that kind of seems to be the way that we've been taught because we're always taught about you know, the, the greats and, you know, they were just geniuses and this is just what they did. This is how they made music. It just mm. was flowing out of them. So you cannot do this unless you know the rules that they followed. But theory is the art of description. It's not a set of rules for composing. So with that regard, you can make anything you can be creative in music without really knowing anything about theory but you can learn theory through composing and improvising mm -hmm. and related to what you said about everything having to be written down that's one of the barriers for composition too where it's you feel like you have a blank stat you know and you've got to write everyone's part out and then there's the technical barriers where and this and, is an area i've been working a lot too doing some group improvisation and composition and there's so much we can do with graphic scores i use some sound painting or a kid will come up with a gesture and the kids will respond with something and suddenly you've got these different spaces yeah. and gestures yeah. and themes that they can just pull up and and collaboratively do it without getting hung up um with with writing it down which and we all, it, always think that comp, comp, compositions have to be written down but they don't uh like a recording is a composition mm -hmm. it's just you know set in stone more or less and when you perform that composition you may change it a little bit here and there all the time you know like the solo might be different when you perform mm -hmm. it but the solo pe becomes a composition once it's recorded and the composition is the recording because when we think about the development of Western staff notation or more specifically European staff notation, it was basically so they could remember ideas because they couldn't actually physically record them. So they would write them down in this standardized notation so that they could pass on the idea to the next person. Um, so really, like the the recording has kind of taken the place in many genres of, mm. of notation. Yeah, and in, in most, I mean, most compositions that have been composed have not been written down. Like it's a exactly. very small subset of things that <laughs> that yes. have gotten written down, or the idea that one person composes it and then someone else plays it. Like that's yes, not and the only like, way it has to go. No, and, and then this this when you're trained as as a classical musician in a classical like conservatory model, you're kind of led to believe that this is kind of the way it has to be and that compositions have to be written down and you know the composer is the all-knowing god of music and the you know the the uh, musicians are the plebeians that must play the composer's music for it to live. You know, it's a kind of this weird <laughs> um, relationship that composers have with musicians. But when you think about music composed in a digital audio workstation, like most pop music or, you know, beats that are created all on computer, 
the composition lives within that computer and pressing play is how you release the, com the composition and <laughs> how people hear it and it sounds the same every time so there's no margin of error for the musicians either in that regard so it's it's just about rethinking what we recognize as what a uh, composition is and what it looks like hmm. is there Anything that emerged in the writing of those three books or that surprised you either like during the process or in how in how they were received? Um, the Rock Coach, the first book, was kind of like a thing. I just, you know, people were asking me how I do the rock bands and how I approach it. And I just thought maybe I'll write it all down. I enjoy I enjoy writing and it was kind of therapeutic for me. So I just started writing and uh it, that one was quite well received. Um, you know, I didn't have a lot of pushback on that one. The second one, the creative musicking, you know, I said a lot of things <laughs> that would be considered controversial in most music education, traditional music education circles. So I did get some pushback on some of that there. But that being said, the reason I have that third book with Oxford University Press is because someone at Oxford University Press read mm. the second book and said, this is awesome. And, uh, you know, would you like to write a book for us? So it was a commission at that point. But, mm. you know, on my Twitter account, I say a lot of things that are quite controversial. And I have this Hot Take Tuesdays <laughs> once a month. Hot Take Tues Muse Ed. Yeah, it's a big long. And... Uh, I've gotten a ton of pushback there. Some of it's themes from my books or like I, I word it in such a way that it gets people riled up on purpose, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think saying things like, because kind of what we were talking about today, like certain things I'll say on the, those hot takes, which is kind of inspired by the writing of the books. Um, like notation is overrated, things like that. Or, you know, maybe rock music should be more present in schools. So simple things like that come out as really, really controversial on Twitter. Uh, and oh, that's the spiciest that takes getting people get, get mad. That's not, gets, that's not the, the spiciest one that always, yeah, yeah, always give, give gets us some, yeah, give like us some the, clicks here. Let's the get spiciest some. one is basically like, Staff notation is overrated. That's one of my spiciest ones ever. Um, one other thing was flute might not be a woodwind instrument. That was like huge. And that was basically thinking about how, you know, we, we talk about the Western orchestra and we try and fit the flute into one of these four families, which it really doesn't belong into. But well, we know if we that think the, about, the corks are all made out of wood, Steve. Yes, but the see, that piece, is kind it's of about a, this big. So people, so. Oh, you know, it's it used to be made of wood, is what they say. <laughs> so, well, but it's not, you know. <laughs> is saxophone a brass instrument then? <laughs> yeah, really, and it, it kind of fall like there's this way of classifying instruments that is basically comes from a ethnomusicology perspective. Because there are music, there are families of instruments outside of the, the Western orchestra. Believe it or not. Whoa, mind blown. But anyway, that was one of my biggest, one of my most spicy <laughs> things. And I find in music education generally, there's a lot of conservative views 
just because it's been the way that we've been doing it for so long. And this is the way that I've learned to do it. And I am classically trained. And so that's, this is the right way. But there really is no right and wrong. Mm. Um, you know, if you get the same, if you get the same uh, product with a different process, then who really cares? Mm. But that whole notation thing, going back to that, has been one of my spiciest. And I kind of brought it back a little bit this week, and it's getting a lot of traction. Um, talking about how, you know, we don't need, like, we don't need to learn staff notation in some, if you're learning some genres. Like, if you're a rock musician, you probably don't need to ever learn staff notation. Mm -hmm. If you're working from a DAW all the time, you probably don't ever need to learn staff notation. Um, yeah, and if you're working from a, a DAW, like staff notation is incredibly limited compared to, you know, when you're talking about the timbre of the synth or how things are placed yeah. on the piano roll, which is so much more. Exactly. And the piano roll so, is your notation, right? So, you yeah, don't and it's need... so much, it gives you more, that can give you more information exactly. than staff notation. Not that you could read it as a, as a score. Anyway, no, I and guess it, I'm, not, it's all I'm not arguing context. with your hot take here. But, yeah. No, it's all context dependent, right? When you think mm -hmm. about it, because you and and it seems to be a lot of absolutists that would say, "Oh, you must must learn staff notation," you know, and kind of implying that you're a lesser musician if you don't learn mm -hmm. staff notation, mm. which is not true. Because, like I said, it's context dependent. If you're playing certain genres, you don't need it. If you're always working with a DAW, you probably don't need it. If you're playing other styles of music that don't use Western staff notation. I don't know, like, I don't know a whole lot about things outside of the Western sphere, but I know there's lots of other musics that don't use it. Yeah, well, some high, you know, high level artistry, like in Hindustani classical music, exactly. it's all by ear, and the, the tuning is so much more precise than yeah. equal temperament. So, and some people, tr you know, try to transcribe it and put it in a staff, but that's not how it's learned, and that's the wrong, it's the wrong tool. Yeah, you know, it's, it's not. Like, it's, it's a like, tool, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. Yeah, you know, is my, you know, in my career, I'm as a professional player. I'm expected to, you know, I've got the reading skills. That there are times where I have to fill in for someone and sight read an entire gig. I'm yeah, like expected to do that. So it's like the notation for those things. I I need it. But I was telling, I think Lauren about a recording session I did recently with this great songwriter from right here, uh, Damien Gerardo. Yeah, I got pulled in at the last minute. I just had lyric sheets. And that was it. And we were just going into the studio. Yep. So I'd listened and same thing. No one, there was no parts. There was no charts. I mean, he talked about going to Hollywood for a session with session musicians. And they're like, man, give me the charts. I need the, you know. And then he's yeah. like, man, I don't do charts. You know, and he took that as like offensive that like, okay. And this was a group of musicians. Some cheating. didn't read any notation. <laughs> yeah, the charts were cheating. There was a young musician that replied to his post on Instagram and drove up from San Diego, didn't read a bit of notation, didn't read chord charts and could nail everything by ear. And we'd people with master's degrees in music that could read notation, but everyone was really coming together and bringing their skills at the service of the music. And I had to figure yeah. out what horn I was going to play. There was almost no yeah. feedback from Damien. But I, that got me, that, it's happened a number of times, but that particular experience where, like you and your ska band, where here's a band that's playing, they don't have charts, they don't have anything transposed, and you have to figure something out that serves the music. And that's an element mm -hmm. of improvisation that's not necessarily playing a solo. And those are some skills that, you know, the programs that you're offering will, will really help because a lot of kids you know you're playing french horn in the the wind band and suddenly you have to make up your own part somewhere you know you're pretty ill-equipped not from lack of musicianship but just experience 
mm-hmm. to do um, to do things like that. Um, yeah, and the, uh, it always seems to come back to this notation thing when I'm talking on Twitter. So, um, oh. yeah, yeah, and that's, that's like a lot of those educators. One. Yeah, some of those educators I notice are self conscious or feeling like. Yeah, of course, this is how I did it, so this is how everyone should do it. But any inkling of feeling like their skill set is maybe becoming slightly irrelevant or things are moving on, like a lot of people are very um, defensive about yes. you know, how things have been because that's what they're skilled at. To, you know, then mm-hmm. the, that thought of being irrelevant because things are moving on. And belittling their skill set mm-hmm. kind of thing, yeah. Well, and also the, peop- the people in charge, right, have been sort of like legitimized by, by this very like specific structure. And so mm-hmm. then the people who are also in charge in a way, right, but like who are who are teaching it their um the like the way they've gained like literally the joy of music in some ways but also like if if they're teaching status and ability to continue teaching right has all been within that framework and i think it's uh it can be a tricky balance between like letting people down easy so that their minds can become liberated but that they're not you know uh, the, that we're, that we're coming together on things instead of, instead of divided, um, when something seems spicy, that is, is sort of seems obvious to the point of absurdity, right? Yes. Um, like about, like about notation. And then sometimes it's, it's, you know, it's a bit of an emperor's wearing no clothes moment. Uh, so I suppose, do you have a, what, what are your ideas or visions for how we can, as I was saying, liberate one mind at a time, but, uh, kind of, someone who's been teaching for a period of time or who's even been learning for a period of time really within this structure like they've invested a lot of time and money into like this one and and life force right into this one specific thing do you have any tips for helping liberate those minds when people are very incentivized to continue in the track they've been and to to sort of bring others into that into that (laughs) fold as opposed to broadening their horizons well follow my twitter account (laughs) 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 <laughs> <laughs> for as long as it's gonna last who knows um yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's another thing um but what i and uh, all honesty that reminds me of a, a project i'm working on right now mm. it's basically a poster that teachers can put in their classrooms or um i'm not sure what how the distribution is going to be but i think they'll be like uh electronic versions that they can forward to students or maybe to, um, you know, pre-service teachers uh, or post in their classrooms by printing it off or whatever. So some of the takes that are in there are come from the hot takes from my Twitter account, but also this is like, if you don't ask the questions, if you don't put those things out there, Mm. things aren't going to change. And I think it's super important that I'm pushing those boundaries and kind of getting people angry uh, because maybe the second time they think about it or the third time they think about it, they're like, you know what? Maybe this is the path forward. Mm. Maybe this is, maybe I have been thinking too much inside the box. Uh, You know, um, I guess question things is kind of my, my advice there. Um, But if I could get, let me try and find that. Some of the things that come up there. Let me just see. And I should add too that I think there's a lot of people who are on the same page as you, or on the same page as us, I guess I could say, mm-hmm. but who'd say, oh, but 
assessment, so I have to mm. X, Y, Z, and oh, but the parents expect, or my principal expects, or that sounds great, but what about yes. the concert at the end of the year? Or, you know, there's there are people who, um, like in many ways, would agree, but there are, you know, objections that come up but i'll let you i'm sure i'm sure your poster yeah, you know what you're about like, to say yeah, may where, handle where some they of that see too. the creative never, thing is like a little you know just a little extra activity if you have time you know mm-hmm. but we don't have time because of the the assessments yeah and i have time it's funny because i i once had a whole concert devoted to complete uh, about 50 percent of the concert was student original material mm. so what about the concert yeah. And get them to write their own songs. Totally. And then present them in the concerts. And I've found too that like when it comes to time, if I devote the same amount of time to encouraging a fairly new singer or piano player to perform to and improvise from a place of their innate musicality versus trying to coax like Mary had a little lamb out of them, <laughs> they often can perform at like a far greater ability where you would like you would it, it, like it's actually the, saving time. It would take much yeah. longer to force them to play. <laughs> how the notation they can, play can innately, get in the way know? is kind of what you're exactly. saying. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, because Whoa. they That's they a hot take can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, so I completely agree because it can be inhibiting in some some respects because the kids often know much more about music than they can read mm-hmm. and they can be more creative than whether than if they have to write it down because the writing down part is what hinders them from being able to actually you know preserve that particular creative idea well i mean in a sense it can be like giving them you know flashcards with three words or five words on them or or even eight words or even 12 words but then saying like okay now go talk to someone have a conversation tell a story but you can only use these words Mm. you know yeah yeah exactly and i uh yeah even just like working with my own my daughter when she was little it became clear very quickly if boring dad was trying to give her a technical music lesson that didn't go very well but you know right off the bat we would be playing songs together like what do you want to play a song about and she'd say okay how about our bunny you know when she hasn't had breakfast yet and is rattling around the cage or whatever so we would just have a little themed jam about our pets you know and she'd be all over the keyboard and play drums and and all those kind of things, and it opened. I've done this with groups, you know. That definitely opens up worlds of yeah musicianship that usually comes ahead of what's possible to for them to write down or read. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think, like, yeah, kind of a practical question. Oh, sorry, what were you going to say? For no, go go yeah. ahead. Um, thinking about so, let's say we've got uh, an example. We've got a maybe a a band director, and some of these large ensembles. One of the things that can be tricky when you're expected as a band director, you know, most, most classroom teachers around here have top out at 30 kids and that's a big classroom, but in band you can have 70 or 80 cause that's just the way it's been, you know, it might not be practical for the first step to divide up into rock bands right away. But what, what would you suggest as an activity? Let's say someone's interested in this, but Hey, I've got 70 kids in the class. There's some behavior issues, you know, management. And that's where like, you know, I, then sometimes like, Oh man, you got to resort to the military stuff. Otherwise the kids will, you know, take over like what, what's alive. what's a um yeah and <clears throat> I've, i'm curious you're to t- I'm, yeah working through some of this myself but or even if it's just a area of one of your you know some of the curriculum in your in your books or like what would be a jumping off point if you were confronting a room 
maybe confronting Thrawn where you're 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 blessed with a with a room of some very uh, energetic. You know, it's a mm-hmm. large large so, group of kids. Have you ever heard of sound painting? So sound painting yeah you're yes you've nodding sound painting sound painting is basically the answer to that because you can get a whole bunch of kids improvising and being creative all at the same time uh and at the same time the director's being creative because they're kind of coming up with that the you know that composition on the spot so everyone is being creative all at the same time and it's uh, pretty authentic to the genre because you know anything kind of goes it can be very aleatoric it can be whatever you want it to be mm-hmm. um and you said you're in a sound painting ensemble steve yeah doing some virtual yeah do, do, do some virtually during the pandemic yeah i'm in a group here called scrambler and oh awesome. deconstruct a nutcracker every yeah so i got geeking to say that's exactly my that is exactly what i do when i'm in a, a group like that because they're still following yeah. the conductor although the guy who created it doesn't like calling i mean I describe it as conducted improvisation. Yes, yeah. Walter Thompson yeah. calls it live composition, which yes, which well, is also but, yeah. accurate. Yeah, it's the uh, yeah, because there's not exactly. Uh, yeah, but it's like for, you folks can't are used like, to following a used to following a conductor. You still have someone telling you what to do. Exactly, but you also have the freedom to make some some decisions. Yes, and yeah, that's why I, I say we'll it's. To, uh, we'll link to. I have some like little intro intro sound painting video. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Then that's why I call it very authentic because you know you're still in the same setting, but it it you're improvising, and that's a good place to start, I think, and it's a good warm up. Um, something else I've done is uh, I put on a track like from YouTube, whatever key we're working on that day. Mm-hmm. Like say we're in B flat or E flat, we find a track on YouTube in whatever genre we want, and just play that, and then I say okay everyone do a solo all at the same time and we mm-hmm. call it moshing <laughs> we're moshing a solo so there's no single voice like uh that's you know out there and, and getting embarrassed everyone is doing the same thing but also completely different things all at the same time they're just having their own little solo with the track and then that eventually turns into okay everyone i'm going to go through each person and everyone's going to do a short two-bar solo Mm -hmm. and just take over from the next person and uh it takes a bit of coaxing at first but Mm -hmm. they really like the whole group jam thing because they're still doing it regardless of whether they do a solo in front of the class or by themselves it doesn't really matter because they're still doing the thing if they're doing it with the entire group in a mosh Mm -hmm. So that's another, yeah, and that's another thing I try and incorporate as a warm up too for a wind band. Um, you know, there's lots of things you can do like that. And what I'll sometimes do is I'll put on a for a wind band. I'll put on a groove pizza groove. I'll get them to come up with the groove on the groove pizza. What, what's groove? What's groove pizza? Groove pizza me? is a uh, website designed by Ethan Hine. Out of uh, New York University, and uh, it's basically okay. a uh, drum machine in the shape of a circle. And it's very cross-curricular, actually. There's lots of geometry involved and different things like that. But I put the groove pizza on. They come up with the beat, and then we come up with a rhythm pattern 
to learn our scales with. So here's a rhythm pattern. You know, I'll make may come up with the rhythm pattern to fit the groove pizza, uh, or I may ask a student to come up and do come up with one, and then we just do our scale based on that rhythm, or something like that as a warm up. So they're thinking a bit the scale differently, but they're also still doing the curriculum. Uh, they may just come up with a solo and based on that rhythm too, you know, you never know. So those are some ways that I would approach that in a large ensemble setting uh, that have worked for me in the past. And I just roll it into the warm up so that they're doing it every day. That's great. That is not a siloed activity. Now we're going to do the improvisation and we're going to play solos. It's like, no, we're going to warm up. I'm glad I asked you that question. I've never seen Groove Pizza. This is going to this is going to keep me and my students entertained for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, groove Pizza is awesome. Yeah. No, sound paintings might go to. And something like that where they have something to, to visually look at, too. I've had luck with them. It's for graphic scores. I have some that. Yes. Or students making their own. Um, another one that's worked for me is putting on a silent film uh, mm. and having yep. them do a, do a soundtrack. That that can go. Then they get to watch a screen too, which means suddenly, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're all um, they're all sucked in. But actually, uh, this, no, this, lo- yeah, this go book ahead. I just remembered that I've used for different ideas is um, by you know Jeffrey Agrell. So Jeffrey Agrell, he wrote the foreword in my second book, but he also has okay. a whole series of books called um, Improvisation Games for Classical Musicians. Mm-hmm. And his first one is like basically all these games in different scenarios, different groups of people, different uh, instrument types, um, all these different scenarios to get mm-hmm. people basically creating in any whatever genre they want. Uh, and it, you know, they could, you know, three little pigs. Let's tell the story of the three little pigs using your instrument. Yeah. You know, kind of games like that, very approachable games. Like here's a here's a word, here's an adjective and a noun. Now make music out of it. Mm-hmm. Let's come up with adjectives and nouns together. Let's make music out of it. And I've done projects like that with kids. And then at the end, they come up with their own piece of music based on that. Mm. Yeah, nothing has to be written down. Yeah. Um, mm. That yeah, that's great. That no, that novelty aspect and kind of doing this with your friend that really that really gets a lot of them. Yeah, focused. I love that. I have one follow-up question, and I'll stop hogging the questions. But uh, <laughs> what would be an idea like for to get a class going for a rock band class or uh, the digital audio workstation course in a school? What do you think is an ideal class size for that? Because I imagine that's not practical to have if you have a band of eighty people for that to be. You know, it's not going to be enough. You know, keyboard or computer yeah. stations or you know, bass amps or if you were designing that course. Well, there's actually a course on PEI that's going to be piloted in every high school that is basically just like you can sign up for band or you can sign up for popular music performance. And right on. smaller classes work better for it. And, uh, you know, you may get eight kids sign up for that class, but, you know, they may all be doing separate projects or they may start their own band or you may get 30 and then you have multiple bands or you may have all 30 of them doing separate projects, you know, uh, or they may be, so it really depends and depends on the spaces you have too. So, you know, typical band rooms would have some practice rooms, which would be ideal for that kind of a thing. Um, but you, what you really need is 
ensemble rooms, practice rooms, individual practice rooms, um, a, a variety of, of uh, spaces for folks to, to do their music because you could get 70 kids sign up for this class and they all have small bands or individual projects or anything like that because it's very student-led, very learner-led. Yeah. So it really depends on what you got in, in the room. Um, you know, a lot of band programs are very director-led or teacher-led uh, ensembles because, you know, you got to listen to the director and you do what the director says and everyone's doing the exact same thing. Um, and that's what I mean about embracing the mess or embracing the chaos because when you get a popular music course or something where you have rock bands, it's going to be messy, it's going to be loud, and it's going to be uh, kind of chaos. Mm. But you, if you have those spaces where folks can feel good about doing their own projects and not disrupting anybody else. I think that's ideal. Wow. And you have an entry point for ensemble music for someone who's like in 10th grade and they can join the popular music class. But if you want to try playing French horn in the orchestra and even played music before, it's like, whoa, you know, you need to take years of private lessons or, you know, you didn't well, start in fourth grade. I don't know. You're way behind. And it kind of removes that barrier where someone exactly so take it as an elective like a photography or an art class or popular music class exactly you can do the music without having to commit from a young age so and funny that you should mention that because the school i worked at last year was an intermediate school so seven eight nine band and the grade nines because of the way the school system in that area is uh, administered there's most kids go to the uh, go to the school in grade seven, but then there's a group, a couple of schools that have a few kids that only enter the school in grade nine, but mm. they can still take music if they choose, which is banned. So I had beginners in the grade nine band class, uh, but they worked hard and got some of them were able to play with the eight nine senior band. Uh, some were not, but they were doing what they could in class and they enjoyed what they were doing and they were, you know, hard workers. Um, so, but they, and I tailored the project. So when we had certain projects that, you know, I knew that was quite advanced for them, I would, you know, tailor it to them because I was just going by who was in the seats, right? I was mm -hmm. letting them tell me what they needed, what, what was going, what was going on. But one of these kids was a flute player in the senior band. She like didn't read staff notation and I didn't hold it against her at all. I said, you know, this is a new skill for you. And in our band class, we learn through the staff notation. So it's something you'll have to work on. But she was also in the rock band that I had there too. And I could give her a recording and in a week she'd have it learned. No question piano parts like she played piano bass she did singing she wrote she wrote her own music she could do the harmonies without even thinking about it um like clearly a very very skilled musician but hadn't ever seen staff notation so we worked through that and i gave her little tips on how to read it faster um but if she had a recording there she'd be great and then she doesn't have that feeling of being behind. Oh, I'm deficient to need to catch up with the band, you know, in that, that yeah, other class. Yeah, and it's just, you know, you can, experience. all I told her was you can join the senior band when you're ready, right? You don't have to come to the rehearsals because it's going to be overwhelming. And I know that because all the others have been reading staff notation for years. Um, but that being said, in the senior band, I did add in some rock 
some rock music where some of them were learning by ear or using tab all at the same time. So we had kids who were learning from the notation. We had kids who were listening to the recording, learning by ear. Uh, and some were learning from tab and some like the drummer was just listening to the recording. Like there was notation, but like drummers, like drummers just don't need it. It's mostly by ear. And if there's a recording, what's the point? And you sometimes know? the jazz band drum charts are so bad that you're better off just learning. You're better off doing it anyway. anyway yeah. Reading it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. It's so, so inspi- go ahead. Go sorry. Ahead. I was just going to say, so like you can do it the other way around too. Like it's not just a rock band that can be student led. You can, mm. a, a wind band can be learner led as well. Hmm. And so inspiring hearing about that work you're you're already doing and this program rolling out and imagining like just how many lives that impacts and how it it kind of creates n- um, like a new version of what can be inspired to, which I think think means more music in the end. Um, it's more music. Yeah, it's more and music. I I feel really it's not less. Yeah, yeah, and I feel really lucky to like know music teachers like you and other music teachers and just just seeing some amazing examples of different kinds of projects that can. Um, like that I know I would have been so excited by when I was a learner and I had some amazing teachers and some amazing opportunities. And, um, I think it's really exciting where, where things are going and you have a, you have a new book coming out. What else is Um, kind of in the horizon for you that you're excited about that you're moving towards? Well, I started working on my, um, teachers pay teachers store a lot more and also, I upgraded my website, so now I can host those resources on my website too. So I've just been kind of doing some more uh, modern band slash popular music um, resources for folks to use, like chord charts, uh, you know, ways to approach um, teaching rock bands, uh, some creative ideas, some composition things, um, you know, for really cheap. Some of them are free, but some, you know, like $3, you know, it's not, and they're not going to break the bank by purchasing these, these particular, um, lessons or groups of lessons or, you know, using, making charts for folks that they can customize too, you know? So that's kind of what I'm focusing my energy on at the moment. But the, uh, and I have smaller, little smaller eBooks that are coming out too, that I'm kind of working on all at the same time. I don't know why I do this to myself, but they're they're all like kind of working on smaller projects um all at once and like i said that poster that i was mentioning earlier that's going to be hopefully something teachers can use in their classrooms to kind of help them uh, get out of that that uh, perfectionism and get out of that uh, western eurocentric mindset of uh you know music learning uh and that I'm kind of going through a couple of drafts. I've been posting the drafts on social media as well for folks to kind of give input because I want it to be something that people can use mm. and something that people can uh, post, you know, discuss with their older students or maybe with pre-service teachers mm-hmm. within universities uh, so that we can continue the conversation that way. Right. So I know all your... Uh your books and other projects are all linked to stevesmusicroom.com, right? That's, That's the right. hub to yeah. find to find everything. You can find and it all there. Links to socials there, so we know in yep. Steve's Music Room. That's your Twitter. That's handle. pretty much my handle for everything. 
Yeah. What other socials in case uh, Twitter explodes? Where, yes. Where is, that? Where, where is the where are the hot takes gonna I am on, move for people well, listening in the future? <laughs> I've been putting some of the hot takes on Instagram as well, just when I you know, because I have to make a whole new graphic for those. But um, I have Instagram where I'll do some of the hot takes and uh, Facebook. I've been starting to put a few more on there. But the uh, like Twitter, I'm super active on there. If you're still up for doing that uh, for now, um, and I started a Mastodon account. Uh, not a lot of uh, music educators on there right now. So if you want to get on that, you can connect Mastodon? with me there. Mastodon, yeah, it's a it's basically an open source Twitter. Mm. Um, and. Uh, I'm on Pinterest as well. I try to be on as many as I can, but there's only so many I can handle all at once. LinkedIn, if you're if people are still using that, I don't know. Um, yeah, pretty much as many of the popular socials that I'm on. Awesome. So you can find me pretty much anywhere. Well, do you want to leave us with any last thoughts, requests for our listeners, anything that... Any of your hot takes that you wanna <laughs> that you wanna close out with? <laughs> close out with. Um, well, put me on the spot now. Let me see. <laughs> so, one of the quotes from my poster that I'm working on. Maybe I'll bring that up, and that might be the best way to find a good one. Uh, what's a good one here? So. You can end with a few if you'd like. It'll oh, be like poetry. Yeah, I'll do a couple. <laughs> I'll do a couple. Here's one. There is more than one standard notation, many of which are also traditional for that culture or instrument or genre. There's one of the quotes. And another one is a, would be... You, uh, music theory is best understood as the art of description, not a set of rules for composing. So... You can start with composing without mm. really knowing what you're doing. And that's kind of what, like, my whole philosophy. Mm. Just occur to me, music is a dish best served delicious, meaning, like, yeah. have fun with it, you know? Exactly. <laughs> Eat it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I said, yep. like the quote, follow your appetite. Right? So you find follow what you're most, your appetite. Kind of what yes. you're, you know, what kind of what you're fascinated with or curious about and kind of go that direction instead of the pile of shooting on yourself. Oh, I should be doing this, but instead I'm really curious about this. Yeah, yeah there is, the... there is no right or wrong way to make music hmm. and to enjoy music. That, no wrong way. That's a, that's a hot take. Some people are going <laughs> to like that. No wrong way. And tell me about it. I've got, mm. Yeah. People <laughs> want to tell you the right way. Holy moly. Yeah. All the time. But yeah. you know, if it works, it works. Hmm. Well, it's oh, made. It's working to make me hungry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm this. Uh, I, yeah, I want to be. Yeah, keep me updated on this pilot program. That that uh, the in the in the public in the public schools. That sounds awesome, and I'd love to pitch that to some groups out here, and especially if you're some schools out here. Especially if you have okay, here's the curriculum, and here's the here's the case study, and here's here's how to build it. Um, exactly. I think when people don't feel like they have to be the first one, you know, you stuck your neck out there to do it. So then other people well, go, oh, look, show their principal looks. Exactly. Other people this are works. already doing this. That's, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks so yeah, much for, yeah, for joining us. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Kind of this is fun. And yeah, you can find more about Steve at Steve's Music Room. 
Facebook.com. We'll have links in the show notes. 